Hello, this is Dr. Pengxin Qian, the editor-in-chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to the June 2019 issue of the Heart Rhythm podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Search for Heart Rhythm Podcasts. Please note that there is no space between heart and rhythm. In addition, translations of this podcast in seven other languages are available each month at the heartrhythmjournal.com website. The featured article this month is an original article titled Arrhythmic Burden Among Asymptomatic Patients with Ischemic Cardiomyopathy and an Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator by Sabag et al. from Davidai Arrhythmia Center, Israel. An accompanying video author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Morin, can be found at the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The authors used the prospective National ICD Registry to examine the benefit of primary prevention ICDs in patients with NYHA class 1 symptoms. They found that after adjustment for the competing risk of death, patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy without heart failure symptoms have a higher risk of appropriate ICD therapy compared with symptomatic patients, suggesting possible incremental benefit of primary ICD implantation in the asymptomatic population. While this study was limited by the absence of a control group, these findings suggest that asymptomatic patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy might benefit from ICD implantation even more than their symptomatic counterparts. Kraston et al. from Emory University wrote the next paper titled A New Model to Predict Ischemic Stroke in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation Using Warfarin or Direct Oral Anticoagulants. They studied 135,000 patients with AF who initiated oral anticoagulants and analyzed 44 candidate variables including comorbidities, procedures, pharmacy fields, and the demographic characteristics. While 11 of these variables were associated with stroke, their predictive value was not better than the established chat 2 ds 2 vasc score. These results offer support to the current recommendation to use chat 2 ds 2 vasc score to evaluate ischemic stroke risk. Next up is a paper by Tsuda et al. from Kanazawa University, Japan, titled Impact of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy on prediction of thromboembolism in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. The authors studied over 2,000 Japanese patients. They found that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is an independent risk factor for thromboembolism in patients with non-valvular AF. A markedly high instance of thromboembolism was observed in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients with all CHAT2-DS2 VAS scores. These results reconfirm the current American and European guidelines that support the initiation of anticoagulation in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and atrial fibrillation, regardless of the CHAS2-DS2-VAS score. The next article is titled, Propensity-Matched Comparison of Cryo-Balloon and Radiofrequency Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation in Elderly Patients by Takashi Ikenuchi et al. from the Japanese Red Cross Saitama Hospital. They studied 305 patients aged greater than 75 years who underwent 
pulmonary vein isolation and follow them for 12 months. They conclude that the efficacy of pulmonary isolation with the cryo balloon might be comparable to that of pulmonary vein isolation with radiofrequency ablation and it involves a shorter procedure time. Because elderly patients are often excluded from randomized clinical trials of cryo-balloon ablation, these data are useful to confirm the efficacy of that population in elderly patients. Leon et al. from University of Pennsylvania wrote the following paper titled Safety and Outcomes of Castor Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation in Adults with Congenital Heart Disease, a multicenter registry study. The author examined, examined 84 congenital heart disease patients undergoing AF ablation with one-year follow-up. Overall, complete freedom from AF was achieved at one year in 53.1% of patients. The authors conclude that in spite of the dramatic differences in the degree of congenital heart disease complexity, AF ablation is both safe and effective in these patients. These findings indicate that patients with complex congenital heart disease may still benefit from AF ablation in highly experienced centers. Next up is a paper titled Association of Mechanical Bradycardia and Post-Extracystolic Potentiation with Premature Ventricular Contraction-Induced Cardiomyopathy by Billet et al. from University Hospital Ranguil, Toulouse, France. Invasive arterial pressure measurements from 17 patients with PVC-induced cardiomyopathy and the 16 controls with frequent PVCs were retrospectively analyzed. PVCs were considered efficient or ejecting when they generated a measurable systolic arterial pressure. The authors found that the number of ejecting PVCs divided by the total number of PVCs was 29% in PVC-induced cardiomyopathy and 78% in controls. Then conclude that the patients with PVC-induced cardiomyopathy have more non-ejecting PVCs compared to controls. Based on these data, the authors proposed that concealed mechanical bradycardia due to hemodynamic inefficiency of PVCs might contribute to the development of PVC-induced cardiomyopathy. Yang et al. from the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania wrote the following article titled Outcomes of Simultaneous Unipolar Radiofrequency Castor Ablation for Intramural Septal Ventricular Tachycardia in Non-Ischemic Cardiomyopathy. Following failed prolonged sequential unipolar RF lesions, simultaneous unipolar RF was delivered using two open irrigated casters at the site of earliest activation and or best in treatment or pace mapping and also at an anatomically adjacent or opposite site. Out of the six patients attempted, four remained arrhythmia-free at 20 months. These findings suggest that simultaneous unipolar RF ablation is a safe and effective alternative ablation approach to improve long-term VT control in patients with intramural septal VT that is refractory to other ablative techniques. Next up is a paper by Mendelssohn et al. from Penn Presbyterian Medical Center 
titled Feasibility of Complex Transfemoral Electrophysiology Procedures in Patients with Inferior Vena Cava Filters. The report included 50 complex ablation procedures in 40 patients. Among them, only three patients had an occluded IVC filter that could not be crossed. Therefore, the presence of an IVC filter should not discourage operators from performing procedures that require transfemoral deployment of multiple casters and or sheaths. Salgetti et al. from Brussels, Belgium, wrote the following article titled Hybrid Thoracoscopic Epicardial Ablation of Right Ventricle Outflow Tract in Patients with Bugatta Syndrome. In their protocol, the electrophysiologists analyzed the electrograms while the surgeons performed ablation in 36 patients. After six months, 16 months of follow-up, freedom from ventricular arrhythmias was achieved in three-quarters of secondary prevention patients and all primary prevention patients. These findings indicate that hybrid thoracoscopic epicardial ablation under direct visualization is safe and feasible with good outcomes. However, the authors note that ICD implantation is still mandatory in secondary prevention and high-risk patients. The next paper is titled Ablation Index as a Predictor of Long-Term Efficacy in Premature Ventricular Complex Ablation, a Regional Target Value Analysis by Casella L. from Milano, Italy. The ablation index is an index incorporating contact force, time, and RF power simultaneously, and it is used to predict lesion size and outcomes in, in atrial fibrillation RF caster ablation. The authors now apply this index to 135 patients with idiopathic outflow tract PVCs. They found that ablation index was higher in the ablation success group than ablation failure group. This data suggests that the ablation index could predict the success of PVC ablation. Prospective studies will be needed to further test that hypothesis. Hi et al. from Queen Mary's Hospital, the University of Hong Kong, wrote the next article titled Safety and the Feasibility of Mid-Septal Implantation Technique of a Leadless Pacemaker. A major risk of implanting leadless pacemaker at the right ventricular apex is cardiac perforation. This study included 51 high-risk patients. Among them, 29 were greater than 80 years old, 7 had a body mass index of less than 20 kg per meter square, 48 had renal dysfunction, and 33 had valvular heart disease. In this cohort, mid-septal implantation of the leadless pacemaker as guided by fluoroscopic RAO, LAO, and left lateral views was achieved in 90% of the patients with a low rate of complications. The pacing threshold remained stable at 200 days of follow-up. Adopting the septal implant technique may reduce the complication rates among high-risk patients. The next paper is titled Syncope, Conduction Disturbance, and Negative Electrophysiological Test. Predictive Factors and Risk Score to Predict Pacemaker Implantation During Follow-Up by Roca uh, Luke et al. from Barcelona, 
Spain. The authors included 159 consecutive patients with syncope and bundle branch block for negative EP studies. All patients received an implantable loop recorder. After two years of follow-up, one of every four of these patients needed a pacemaker for bradycardia. In the multivariate analysis, only bifascicular block and HV interval of greater than 60 milliseconds were statistically significant uh, predictors for pacemaker implantation. Most importantly, this wait-and-see approach resulted in no deaths or severe trauma related to bradyarrhythmia. Next up is paper by Miwa et al. from Japanese Red Cross Musashino Hospital titled Impact of Diurnal Variations in the QRS Complex and T-Waves on the Eligibility of Subcutaneous Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillators. They analyzed 24-hour Holter monitoring in 86 patients in order to assess SICD eligibility. The results showed that a quarter of the patients with a transvenous ICD who initially appeared eligible by conventional and exercise screening ECGs were de declared ineligible for SICD when Holter monitoring revealed tracings that could result in mal-sensing by SICD. The detection of diurnal variations by Holter monitoring in addition to conventional screening is expected to be useful for determining SICD eligibility. This approach is particularly applicable to patients with increased QRS duration or those with Bugatta syndrome. Hattori et al. from Yokohama Rosai Hospital in Japan wrote the following paper titled Prognostic Impact of Lead Tip Position Confirmed via computer, uh, Computed Tomography in Patients with Red Ventricular Septal Pacing. The authors retrospectively enrolled 228 consecutive patients with AV block. Using the CT scan, the patient's RV lead tip positions were, re, uh, were classified as septal versus free wall. Multivariate Cox regression analysis demonstrated that the lead tip in the free wall was an independent predictor of cardiac death and heart failure hospitalization. These studies suggest that RV lead position is associated with outcomes. A limitation is that CT scan is available only after implantation and thus cannot be used to guide lead positioning. The next article is cardiorenal status using amino terminal pro-brain natriuretic peptide and cystatine C on cardiac resynchronizing therapy outcomes from the bio CRT study by Trung et al. from New York Presbyterian Hospital and the Will Cornell Medical uh, Center. The authors studied 92 patients. Baseline cardiorenal patients were defined as having high NT-pro-BMP and uh, cystatin C. Compared to patients with low NT-pro-BMP and cystatin C, cardiorenal patients had a greater than nine-fold increased risk of CRT non-response and more than six-fold higher risk of major adverse cardiac events within two years. The authors conclude that the cardiorenal status, as determined by NT-pro-BMP and cystatin C levels, can identify high-risk CRT patients and those with both biomarkers elevated 
have a worse prognosis. The risk-benefit relationship of CRT implantation in these patients appear to be significantly different from those without adverse markers of cardiorenal status. Beruter et al. from University of Bern, uh, Switzerland, wrote the following article titled Needless Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, an in vivo proof-of-concept study of wireless pacemaker synchronization. Their data was to implant several leadless pacemakers in the same heart and synchronize their activity by wireless communication method. They tested this concept in porcine hearts and demonstrated that three leadless pacemakers can work together to deliver cardiac resynchronization therapy. This new technology may one day be useful in clinical practice. The next paper is titled Differences in the Upslope of the Precordial Body Surface ECG T-Wave Reflect Right-to-Left Dispersion of Repolarization in the Intact Human Heart by Srinivasan et al. from St. Bartholomew's Hospital, London. The authors performed intracardial recording in 10 normal human subjects to measure left and right ventricular electrograms and correlated the results with the ECG T-wave recorded on the body surface. They found that the precordial surface T-wave reflects regional repolarization differences between the right and left heart. These findings have important implications for accurately identifying biomarkers of arrhythmic risk. This article is followed by a debate between two groups authors about the validity of the T-peak to T-N interval as a measure of repolarization heterogeneity. This month's HR's 40th anniversary viewpoint is written by Susan Song of the University of Southern California, titled A Serendipitous Encounter in the World of Pacing. That paper is followed by a viewpoint entitled Improved Engineering Standards for Transvenous Cardiac Leads, a progress report from the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation Cardiac Rhythm Management Device Committee Leads Working Group which was written by Cook et al. The abstracts of this year's Heart Rhythm Society scientific sessions late-breaking clinical trials are also published in this issue of the journal. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pinxian Chen.